Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. The following is intended solely for the use of those with a sense of adventure. I'm shaking the dust of this town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. This is Travel with Hawkeye. Here's your host, Mark Hawkeye Lewis. I love island life and I love the Caribbean. I try to visit as many of the islands in the Caribbean as I can. And there's one particular island that really draws a lot of people who are rich and famous and is hard to get to. It's called St. Bart's. And there's a brand new book from Lyle Greenfield called 1,000 Days in St. Bart's. It's available on Amazon. And it's a fascinating read if uh, you've ever wanted to know more about this unusual place in the Caribbean. And we're going to delve into why it's so unusual and what makes it so special. But first of all, Lyle joins us today. And and the 1,000 days in St. Bart's, that's not all at once, right? That's over many, many years. Yes, that is correct. Mm. It's uh, approximately 38 years uh, since I first landed on the island in 1984. Okay. And I actually had a chance to go to the island once and i was fascinated by it and i was it's absolutely one of the most beautiful islands in the caribbean i've been to many of the caribbean islands and in my opinion i think it's one of the most uh, beautiful islands it has a lot to offer though it is very very small is it not it is very small and um that's an advantage i think in some respects but also uh potentially a liability because it's so popular as a resort destination for uh for the very rich and the very famous, that there's been a lot of development and the question of, you know, where does it go from here is sort of an annual one that's that's raised by residents, environmentalists, people concerned about the lasting charms of this beautiful little island. But I keep going back and whenever I speak with first time visitors, <laughs> they don't they don't have this awareness of what it was. 38 years ago, or in some cases, you know, 50 years ago. And they're just sort of swooning over the beauty of it, uh, the friendliness, the, you know, the great beaches. Maybe I'm a little bit spoiled or my viewpoint is slightly tainted as someone who's known it back when, if you will, when we first we're going to this island. Well, before we get to that, and I, that's what, yeah. that's the thing that I was so fascinated by, because when I went there, the island is, is different from any other island in the Caribbean. And I, when, yeah. you know, when I started to find out that you actually have been to the island before it is like it is now, it's like, it just blew me away because I've, I've always wondered how it became what it is. But let's first talk about real quickly what St. Bart's is now, because a lot of islands in the Caribbean um, there's limited resources for agriculture, for any type of industry. And a lot of people yeah. leave the islands and go like to New York City and have jobs in New York City to support family back in different islands in the Caribbean. And most of the jobs seem to be, in most places in the Caribbean, tourist-based uh, tourist jobs. And yeah. if you can't get one of those, then it's, it's a tough existence in many of these islands. And a lot of islands, there's... Um, there's a lot of poverty, and there's people that are, you know, it's just struggling to get by. When I went to St. Bart's, beautiful like all the other islands in the Caribbean, but I noticed that there didn't seem to be hardly any poverty, and uh, there was 
the day the day that I was there, I saw young women hitchhiking on the island, and you would never see that on any other island in the Caribbean. There was just a whole different vibe. Uh, and as you've mentioned previously, uh, moments ago, there is, you know, it, it is a destination for the rich and the beautiful, but it's also just a different kind of vibe on the island. Is that not fair to say? I think it is fair to say, and it's also one of the things that appealed to me most from the very beginning. Um, you know, my, my career, for the most part, has been in New York City, and the idea of taking a vacation to a beautiful place and then feeling bad because you're confronted with, you know, let's say extraordinary poverty. And here you didn't see it on St. Bart's. And I think one reason is that, you know, historically, the, uh, as, as you mentioned, Mark, there was no agricultural possibility on this island. It's a volcanic, it's a small volcanic rock in the Caribbean. And uh, very little fresh water except what falls from the heavens and into the cisterns. So there was no slave trade in the 16 to 1700s to speak of. There were maybe less than 100 slaves brought to the island in the very early days to help build things in the port. And then for the French in the mid-1800s, uh, slavery was abolished, which I find interesting, actually, because it was abolished there before in our own country. Um, there was little there was little for these folks to do. So many moved off the island to find opportunities elsewhere. So its foundation has been as a port, you know, a place from which uh, things could be transported to other islands or the continent of North America or South America. Columbus discovered this island, and he named it after his brother, Bartolomeo. But the Spanish never settled there, which I'm kind of thankful for, to be honest. But, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's a bit of the history, I think, that explains the fact that there isn't this, this level of poverty on the island. So that so, being said... Uh, when you started going to the island, well, I, I, guess I, I guess I should ask, really, when did the island start to develop as a tourist destination? Um, because I could kind of tell there's nothing here on this island. Uh, there's no agriculture. Uh, there's very little support uh, on the island. And, and it's just this beautiful destination. How did it become yeah. what it is? Well, um, it goes, I, I would say, back to... 1950-ish, which, you know, in our lifetimes is uh, a fairly short time ago mm -hmm. when people like Rockefeller and Greta Garbo and some other people discovered this beautiful little destination where at the time there was only sort of one somewhat renowned hotel that had been created by an aviator and entrepreneur named Remy DeHanen who landed the first plane on this island in the 1950s. I, I have this date specifically referenced in the book, but um, he landed his Cessna plane in a field in the, uh, in the Bay Saint-Jean, and uh, he was the first to land a plane there, and to this day the airport is named after him. The runway is too short to have jets uh, come to the island, so you have to either fly to Puerto Rico or fly to St. Martin. 
in order to take a smaller plane, uh, a prop plane, to the island of St. Barts. So I think that for many people that's a plus. In other respects, what became attractive about the island in the decades to follow were, I don't know whether this is an accident or uh, whether we credit early zoning, but there are no high-rises on this island. There is no golf course. There are no casinos. So it's been able to, even with the modernizations, uh, maintain a level of charm that you don't find in other Caribbean islands that are sort of heavy with the resort vibe, so to speak. Yeah. When did you start going there? You said in the 80s? 1984. What was it like in 1984? Was it well-developed, or was it still becoming to what it is now? Well, it's one of those things where it's always been becoming. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no way that, you know, that I discovered the, uh, no. the joys and beauties of this, of this treasure, this secret thing. I believe, uh, according to pop culture lore, that Billy Joel met his wife, Christy Brinkley, his future wife, mm-hmm. uh, on the island in the late 70s. And she was on a swimsuit uh, visit, I guess. I guess you could call it a business trip. <laughs> and Billy Joel was vacationing on the island and playing piano at some joint. And uh, that's, I believe, where they met each other. So... You know, at, at some point in the in the couple of decades before before I arrived on the island, it was becoming popular. It was becoming a destination. Mm-hmm. It's a place that was, you know, a bit special where you wouldn't find, you know, sort of everybody, including the paparazzi, looking out for you, uh, trying to track you down. It's a very different world today, but when I first came, there was no euro, for example. There was the French franc. And at that time in 1984, the dollar versus the franc, it was almost 10 to 1. So we were staying in a uh, a Relay and Chateau hotel. <laughs> 10 to 1? Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I've decided it blew my mind. 10 to 1. That must have been fantastic as an American. Well, it was it was crazy because you think, well, I have to go to, you know, I have to go to Mexico or I have to go to some, you know, Eastern European nation to get, you yeah. know, these sorts of values. But here it was, you know, fairly close to home on a sophisticated island, and it was, uh, you know, langoust dinner for two with a bottle of rosé for thirty nine dollars. <laughs> Uh, that ain't the way it is today. Yeah, yeah. What, let me ask you this. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that there's no fresh water on the island other than what people catch by, you know, by catchment. Um, does that? I have to imagine that that has limited the growth also on the island, that it can only sustain so many people. Is that fair to say? Well, that would be fair to say. And, you know, up until, I'm going to say, 15 to 20 years ago, it was the case that the fresh water was literally coming from the cisterns and, you know, your hotel room would say, please don't run the water while you're brushing your teeth, Uh you know, um, because we're saving all that we can. But over the past, I guess you'd say 15 to 20 years, 
uh, fresh water, public water has become available on the island. Uh, it is, I assume, without knowing so much about the island's infrastructure, it is from desalinated water. Oh, okay, okay. But all of the hotels, all of the restaurants, and I think the vast majority of homes, even the traditional cottages on the island, would now have fresh water. Okay. Uh, and occasionally there's a breakdown in that system, and suddenly no one on half oh, of wow. the island has fresh water. Wow. But- Speak to this, if you would, uh, because yeah. this was one of the most amazing things I've seen on any island in the Caribbean, is the experience in uh, landing uh, from a small prop plane at the airport in St. Bart's, because it is quite an experience. <laughs> well, I'm going to speak as someone who's uh, sort of a chicken in the sky. <laughs> okay, perfect. Like, perfect makes it even fly. better. <laughs> you know, so if I'm, uh, if I'm up in the air, far above the surface of the earth, and we hit turbulence, uh, Lyle has to put down his book <laughs> and uh, start meditating. Now, it's it can be alarming that landing in the small airport because you have to uh, you come over a hillside and then the plane needs to drop suddenly to come to um, the the forward looking lip of this runway. And get the wheels on the ground before it gets to the beach. Yes, because the runway stops right at the public beach. And if you're at the beach, you're seeing this happen all day long. I mean, the planes literally stop right before the sand starts. Exactly. And, you know, for, well, at least three decades, you know, you could walk back and forth on the beach and people would walk right in front of the runway and wait for a plane to come in or take off. And uh, because they wanted to, you know, take take the famous photograph yeah. of the underbelly of a small plane. And uh, there was one occasion in which uh, someone got uh, their head bumped by a plane while they were trying to do this. And the, uh, the transportation, the aviation authorities in France said, guess what? You're <laughs> going to put a fence there or we're closing your airport. So there was there was a lot of uproar over this. Like, we don't want a fence blocking our walk back and forth. But they did it. And uh, everyone lived happily ever after. I'm not saying that no one has ever uh, perished uh-huh. because of this landing. It is, it is a little exciting. But for me, as a uh, a frightened flyer, so to speak, I'd rather be in a small plane like where I can see the surface of the water or the surface of the earth and uh, and think to myself, okay, we're really close now. Uh, there's also another aspect to this airport. Uh, you said, you know, the plane comes over a hill before it has to drop down really fast onto yes. the runway. At the top of that hill, if I recall correctly, uh, there's a road. And I remember being on that road and all of a sudden there was a plane that was like inches from the top of my car because that's a public road at the top of the hill. It's, uh, Mark, you're right. It's kind of alarming, (laughs) depending on where you are. And it's also interesting to see, you know, they haven't fenced off the top of the hill. So what happens is people will pull over, get out, 
get their little uh, movie cameras or iPhones and, you know, wait for the next plane to come in. It's become, uh, you know, maybe a, a bit of a tourist cliche. But, um, you know, so far no one's been knocked off the hill, so to speak. So I, I'm always thinking to myself, especially if it's a young pilot who appears to be maybe 20, I think, God, I hope you've done this a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so the book. Let's talk about the book here. A thousand days in St. Bart's. Uh, uh, tell me about the concept behind this, because this is really like thirty plus years of you visiting this island and some of the characters and places that have come and gone over the past thirty years. You've really captured the flavor of this place in the book. Well, I appreciate your saying that. Um, you know, initially. What happened was that um, my wife and I took a very serendipitous and spontaneous vacation in spring of 2019, and she is a uh, she's been a language teacher, a Spanish teacher, her entire career, and she is not Hispanic, but also has a master's degree in English as a second language. So we're on this little five day trip in May of 2019, and Mary sees an ad in a local newspaper. Hey. They're looking for an English teacher, this little school. And I said, well, do you want to check it out? Should I? Well, why not? It's just an interview. So she ended up being hired for uh, a semester, the fall semester of that very year. And um, we're pretty excited because I'd never spent more than three weeks, four weeks at a time on the island. And now we were going to spend hurricane season. Mm hmm like, yay, what would that be like? <laughs> the rents were lower, of course, because, you know, half, half or more of the island is closed in September, October, and opening, reopening in, in early November again. So people would say to me, what are you going to do? Your wife is teaching full time. And uh, I said, well, I'll rake the beaches. But I thought I needed something constructive to do and i decided to to take a shot at writing this book so she was going to be you know literally in school at at 8 a.m with a uh, two-hour break for lunch and she would be back until 6 p.m and i thought well I, I have to use this time constructively and i have to use her schedule as a way to define the time that i'm spending because i'm not just going to go to the beach yeah you know be the uh the lazy tourist husband while my wife is working for for pennies on the dollar. Um, so I, I sat and, you know, made a goal. I'm going to write 1,000 or 1,500 words a day. And, uh, you know, you start out with a concept for the book. I started out with, uh, with chapter headings, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I expanded the list of people that I thought it would be appropriate for me to meet. And um, I think that the the draft of the book was substantially finished at that time um, between mid-September and mid-December of 2019. And then uh, I had uh, I had promised each of the interviewees that look, you're going to be the editor of this chapter. I'm not a journalist, so I'm not interested in any part of your story that you were, you know. Un unwilling or uncomfortable telling me, but I had an, in you know, my, 
my maybe my most interesting interview, Mark, was with the president of the island, the three-time president, Bruno McGraw. And I mentioned that because and he decided not to run for a fourth term uh, at the age of 71. But I sat with him. We were kind of uh, peers age-wise. His English was not great. But he told me that um, when he was a child, so this would have been in the 50s, there were no roads the way we see them now. There were no cars the way you see them on the island now. No fresh water, running water, no electricity, which means no refrigeration. Mm-hmm. So his father, his grandfather would go to the salt flats, get salt, and that's how they preserve the meat and fish. And here's a guy who was walking with his brothers uh, to school three miles a day to, to Gustavia, the port and the public school there. And he's, he was describing to me, and this is, this is in my lifetime, a situation that didn't exist in terms of lack of development that, that existed in our country in the mid-1800s and late-1800s. Mm-hmm. In other words, we didn't have automobiles on the road until basically the beginning of the 20th century. So here we are on this island in the mid in the 1950s with no cars on the road and the roads were basically buggy and donkey trail. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, it's amazing when you think about that. It's really fascinating. That's what uh that's what I found so interesting because I've always wondered why, what is the history of this island? What was it like because I can't, I couldn't imagine that it had a very vibrant past which you know from your book I you know gathered that it didn't. And then how did it become this glamorous spot on the planet? It's just a complete 180 from what it used to be. And as you said, you know, there is a man there who remembers everything, how it changed step by step. It's a fast. If you're if you're interested, if you've ever been to St. Bart's or interested in going or heard about it, this is a great book. It's called A Thousand Days in St. Bart's. Lyle Greenfield. Uh, thank you for sharing with us your experiences and something about this amazing place that so many people have either wanted to visit or have visited and really don't know a lot about other than a lot of rich people go there. It's kind of become a rich enclave. It really is a fascinating story. Well, I appreciate the time, Mark, and uh, your questions have been penetrating. <laughs> challenged my own memory, so uh, I hope to see you on the beach there in the near future. All right. And uh, we will uh, go up to the fence at the airport, but not around it. Okay. You got a deal. Once again, the book is called A Thousand Days in St. Barth by Lyle Greenfield. And you've been listening to the Travel with Hawkeye podcast. I'm Mark Hawkeye Lewis. The world is out there. Your adventure awaits. Afford Anything is a podcast that teaches you how to be smart with your money. As a small business, you don't have the resources to pay the level of overhead and for the level of services that a Fortune 500 company could afford. So I certainly understand why, if you want to offer benefits, the providers of that, that that fee is going to be higher because there's more account management per employee. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.